Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Rebecca Bernard. Nurse practitioner and physician assistant use is often justified because of a physician shortage, especially in underserved areas. One major cause of the physician shortage is a lack of residency positions, the minimum required training that must be completed after medical school in order to be licensed as a physician. Every year, thousands of aspiring physicians are unable to complete their training because of a lack of funding for residency positions. While physician advocacy groups are lobbying Congress for more residency funding, some doctors are taking direct action to help medical school graduates to continue their journey to becoming licensed physicians. And today we are joined by Dr. Mary Tipton. She's an internal medicine pediatric physician, and she's creating opportunities for unmatched medical school graduates to gain additional training and expertise at her clinic. Dr. Tipton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I heard you talk at a Physicians for Patient Protection meeting, and I was so inspired and intrigued by what you're doing to help future physicians. But let's start out by just telling our audience a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in doing this. I am a 40-something-year-old physician, and I have been in practice for over 20 years. Um, I was raised in Anchorage, Alaska, studied chemical engineering in Arizona, ended up in Utah for practice. So I have a primary care business that I run in a suburb of Salt Lake City area. It's called Copperview Medical Center. Like you said, I'm internal medicine and pediatrics double boarded. So I have a lot of experience with many aspects of healthcare. Since I'm a mother of four children, I facilitate their healthcare, of course. My husband is Air Force, so we have military insurance and He's gone a lot and, um, of course, take care of him and other military members. And then um, as a business owner, because I'm in private practice, I have been feeling this physician shortage problem as acutely or as anyone else, or maybe more so. One year ago, almost exactly, we had a third of our providers at my clinic. Normally, we had 21 nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians, MD and DO uh, working, and eight of the 21 quit within a two-month period. We are still, as of now, trying to hire those spots and have not been able to fill any physician spots in all that time, despite trying the whole time. Um, we have hired a nurse practitioner PA, so we're, we're, we're definitely struggling to maintain our level of care, especially during the pandemic. So when I heard about this about a year and a half ago, the plight of these unmatched physicians, you know, one of the motivating factors of helping them besides the fact that it's an injustice and for sure is just that um, we needed additional bodies to work at my clinic. So that's kind of how it started was just the conglomeration of the knowing that I could potentially use them here in Utah, and then really needing help at our office. That is a huge turnover in a short period of time. Was that COVID pandemic related? Or what? why do you think that happened? You know, I think it mirrors a lot of the reasons I hear about physicians leaving practices and medicine in general in other areas. So out of the eight, five of them are not even practicing clinical medicine. That's definitely happening, like you said, across the country and finding new 
physicians or even non-physician practitioners in some cases can be really difficult, especially in certain areas. The two physicians, one left the state because of a spouse job and is doing just academic. The other one went from outpatient medicine to hospitalist for quality of life preference issues and stuff. And then um, we did have a couple of the advanced practice providers or mid-levels go to other jobs, but several of them are not doing clinical medicine. They're staying home with kids. They're having their spouse work. They're, they were burned out, tired. It's just this general burnout, which is getting greater and greater and then throw in the pandemic and everything else that's been going on. That's must be really hard for you as a business owner to be able to manage. So you started thinking, you know, there are all these really thousands of unmatched medical students that really are desperate for some kind of opportunity. First of all, tell our audience a little bit about the match, about residency, and about how many unfilled slots there are and why. Physicians in the United States must go through a residency in order to practice medicine. So they're graduated from a medical school, which is four years usually after undergraduate degree. So they have their graduate degree, but that does not allow them to practice medicine anywhere in the United States in any way. So they are completely unable to work unlike graduates of other programs. It's estimated that 50 to over 100,000 physicians are needed, or or we will be short that many physicians by just 10 years from now, 2034. Um, And that estimate was created before the pandemic. So I I really think it's on the upper end. Like we're going to be over 100,000 physicians short in the USA within the next 10 years. Wow. And the limiting factor seems to be those residency slots, because every year there are more graduates from medical school, not only coming from foreign schools from uh, around the world, but just potential doctors that graduate from schools in the United States. So what they have to do if they don't match is they have to basically spend a year waiting and then reapply. And you know, the less times I guess you don't match the first time, your chance of matching the second time is going to go down even greater because it's more competitive. So one of the opportunities that you've created is for some of these students to actually come and work with you so that they gain experience. Talk about what that's like. The number of unmatched physicians is a lot bigger than I ever knew. In 2022, so just this last year, there was um, actually 11,500 medical graduates that went unmatched. People say there's a bunch of foreign grads in there. That is true. There is about 5,000 of those that are foreign medical school trained. And those people have the hardest time getting spots in the U.S., which makes some sense because a lot of our residency program is funded by the government. So we would want to train physicians that are from or will stay in the U.S. But there's over 3,000 U.S. Uh, citizens with U.S. training that don't match. So yes, there's about uh, there's over three thousand U.S. citizens with U.S. training every every year that are in this limbo that you talked about. So isn't it crazy? Because you know we're always hearing about well, we need to let NPs and PAs practice autonomously because of a physician shortage. But meanwhile, yeah. you have all of these potential doctors that are ready and willing, and they've done all the the basic work, and they're not able to continue. It it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. We have an anti-competitive training situation or or selection process for them. We have uh, a lot of barriers, financial and in in other ways for them to to reach the workplace. And yet we have this shortage. And then we're dramatically increasing our numbers of non-physician providers to 
quote unquote, fill the gap. But I believe that is not, you know, the answer that this is part of the answer is that we need to train more physicians. And the stories that you hear from these medical graduates are just heartbreaking. All they want is to be licensed as a physician. All they want is to get into a residency and they can't and they're really stuck. There's nothing that they can do or very little that they can do in the field of medicine to while they're waiting to get into residency. Yeah, very, very true. Um, so I can tell you a little bit about what I this program I started, and I heard many stories of people as I interviewed. That was really eye-opening to hear, and certainly not something that I've been directly exposed to before, the magnitude or severity of the of these um, situation of these people that are often not speaking up very much because they're ashamed and embarrassed and kind of stuck, you know, with debt. They don't speak out as much as you might think they they would. And then when they do tell you one-on-one, you're just like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. So anyway, Utah is one of the maybe seven or eight states that has a law that allows them to work in some capacity. So what I did is I hired uh, two unmatched medical school graduates to work for me starting in the spring of 22. And I interviewed and listed the position in just a couple months before that. So like right after the match. So I guess that timing worked out well because I did get um, hundreds and hundreds, if not almost a thousand applicants for my job posting, which was just online at unmatchedmd.com. So there's a website that, that's unmatchedmd.com, and that's where people can look, you know, employers and unmatched doctors, right. potential doctors trying to find opportunities. Yeah, that, that is one resource for sure for uh, all the people in this process. Utah law requires that they be U.S. trained. So that's just a limitation that was within my state. But other states are a little bit different and and all different kind of variations of the law. So in Utah, we call it associate physicians to try to differentiate between assistant physicians or physician assistants. So I'll just call them APs or associate physicians, which is kind of how we designated them in my practice to try to help us not get confused because we have PAs and nurse practitioners in my practice. And then we have APs now and MDs, NDOs. Yeah, the initials get can get kind of confusing yeah. <laughs> if you're not careful. AP. So AP. you had hundreds and even maybe a thousand applicants. How did you narrow down to those two people? There was some other requirements just because of Utah. They couldn't have been out of medical school for more than two years. I said in my listing that I would only take someone who was interested in primary care and would be willing to work or and is seeking a, a residency program in primary care. I didn't want like a specialist because they wouldn't be happy with the work we're doing. And then um, it was a one-year contract. So I, I quickly found that there was a fair number of people that had already been through some residency. And I now somewhat regret that decision, which I can tell you at the end, but I did prioritize those people. And so, I mean, thinking that they had more experience and that would be better, that is just another way that I narrowed it down. And I ended up hiring two graduates. There's an MD and a DO, and, and they both had one year of internship or residency that they had done and then left for various reasons. Wow. I did a bunch of interviews um, with myself and with my team. I have three other physician partners. Thankfully, I could not do that without this without them. I could not supervise the amount of supervision that is required for two. There's four of us basically shouldering all this supervision load. And that was really the max that we could or should have taken, meaning like, I think you need like two physicians per one pair, is my opinion, depending 
all busier practices and stuff, but. Right. Because the idea is that they can see patients, but it has to be under extremely strict supervision, right? Like every single patient goes through you or how does it work? So you write up an agreement that's very similar to the ones that we have for our PAs and our, um, well, NPs, we don't really have a supervisory agreement because now Utah is a pre-practice state. But for our PAs and the APs, it was a similar type of agreement. So it it is actually open to our discretion, but in our practice, we do 100% chart review. So you can structure, I guess, however you want. It would depend, um, which I think is good. The physician who's supervising and has that person on their license, literally it's on my license. I took one of them and my partner took another one. You are responsible for everything that they do. You actually have to build the patients that they see in your own name because no insurance company recognizes this license. Um, even though the state of Utah licenses them, they're not board certified and credentialed, right? Anywhere. And so, yeah, so you're really taking full responsibility and I take that seriously. So yeah, it's kind of like, I guess, like having an intern, it's the same yeah. sort of thing because like our attendings would bill, uh, we would bill under them and when we yeah. were our, in our first year before we had our medical license. It's very, very similar. And then um, you can prescribe though, similar to residents, they, I meaning they can prescribe, but you're you're still supervising them, but they, they, the prescriptions do go out in their name, you know, after they have their letter license. So like I said, in, in Utah, there were some barriers that I hope I can improve, but there, it was a very onerous process because even though the law has been on the books for seven years, I was only the sixth and seventh applicant to get this license in the state of Utah. So there's not a lot of experience on the like bureaucracy level of how to take care of their applications and do all this. So it was it was a bit owners, but we got them licensed. It just took longer than we thought. We got the DEA, which you have to get as well. And that takes like two whole months during times of COVID. And that was just to really get them started with you since it's a license to let them practice under you, basically. Yeah, it's called, it's just a restricted license. It's listed on the website with all other licenses, like mine's on there, theirs is on there. It just says restricted associate physician license. And then it says who is their supervising physician on the website as well, which is me. And then there's a a few other restrictions. There is actually, they can only do schedule three through five, like they can't do schedule two meds which is hard because of ADD med checks that we would be like ideal for them to do. So it's just like some frustrating things mm-hmm. there. Some of the other barriers that I have found is, is all has to do with um, logistics of the fact that they're not credentialed with insurance companies. So they cannot order independently labs, x-rays, any studies to other hospital systems. And so just, you know, you have your EMR and you put them in as like a provider. And so they're just, they're, they're handicapped in a lot of ways. And then like linked to me where I have to review the labs and then send them to them. Or like I get all the hospital notes and then forward it to them. So some of those logistics are challenging, but and Once a lot of work for you to take on. And I, I applaud you for, you know, even trying to do this because you're really trying to make a difference. So let me ask you, did both of those um, people finish the year with you? Or was it successful? Oh, so we're only six months into it, maybe oh. seven. So, yeah. So it took... Um, because it took so long to just get started. Yeah, it was Got like it. months until they... Well, no, it's still six months from even... They started May, June. And now it's like January. So one of them's like six months and one's seven. They do have a one-year contract. They are applying and have applied for residencies. 
again, you know, the match isn't for some months. They haven't had very many interviews, but they're working on that. I think they're both a couple years out, which is very challenging. I mean, the, the stats on applying these days is so discouraging as far as the trying to get interviews and stuff. So for the ones that haven't matched already, it's really the odds are just not great. And they filter out, I think their applications based on the year that they graduated from medical school. And for sure, the further you're out beyond like one to two years, I think that it's I've found it's much harder for them. Even with letters from us saying like they're working and, you know, we're working with them and they're seeing patients like they're working as physicians, essentially. I Um, hope that they, I have my fingers crossed for them that somehow they're going to find a slot, especially, you know, they've shown this dedication to becoming physicians. Or maybe the next year. So they can work up to six years in the current Utah law under this restricted license. Isn't It's like two years, I think. And I forget what state was the first one to do this. And I think it was two years. So six years. It's a long time. Even Utah was two, then four, then six. Like as the law has changed over the years, the current is six. Maybe that will even change by the time one of them, you know, if they stick around or something. So the benefits have been um, definitely just to have people to work. We have an urgent care and a primary care practice. We are open seven days a week, 365 days a year. We're open till 10 p.m. We have shifts that need to be covered that, you know, are not the easiest to cover. And so they're working those shifts till 10 p.m. They're working nights and weekends. They're working holidays. And that helps me and um, covers our urgent care. And a lot of those patients are not very complex. They're definitely within their abilities and scope, you know, with not that much supervision. So definitely that has helped us. We pay them. We pay them more than they would get as a resident, but not a lot more because of all of the risk and um, supervisory requirements and the fact that they see patients on a slower schedule, but they do have benefits and, you know, schedule and we treat them just like regular employees. It sounds very fair. Now, what's your malpractice like for covering them? That's actually like just under ours or whatever. So that hasn't, that had not been a problem. Of course, we had to go Make sure that that was covered before we got them on board and stuff, but it hasn't been a barrier. Oh, that's good news, at least. (laughs) Yes, that is good. Yeah, we're happy with it, but um, it it has been hard. And I think some parts of it would get easier and some would just be the same if we when we if we re-up or do it again. What were the things that you learned that you might do differently or what advice would you give other physicians who might be interested in doing what you're doing? Great question, because I really, really think it would make such a difference if more physicians were willing to take these type of people on. One thing I wanted to say is that I have a lot of experience supervising nurse practitioners and PAs. Okay, I've been doing that for 20 years. There are a lot of similarities with the onboarding process, with the training that we had to do and we still are doing with some of their limitations. And we have some, like one nurse practitioner that started at the same time they did is kind of running circles around them. So some, you know, we have some really good nurse practitioners that have worked many years in in their nursing career before they came because I only hire, only hire nurses that have that. You're asking what I, what I learned or what I would do differently. I think that the reason that they were unable to complete their residencies, although they seemed to be external faults or in, in um, adequacies, Initially, it has become clear that there was maybe some internal difficulties that they uh, had, and I underestimated those. 
in light of thinking that it would be so beneficial to have the expertise of some residencies, which, by the way, residencies are not all created equal. It's abhorrent, the stories that I heard and continue to hear from my current employees that did this one year during COVID and um, the applicants of how bad some of these residency programs are right now, by the way, especially for-profit residencies. Nothing like what I experienced. Very poor supervision, very inadequate education, terrible working conditions. So that's really sad to hear that. It is really sad. It was really sad. So I might, if I uh, redo this, prioritize differently and just look at, you know, maybe like the quality of the medical school and get a fourth year graduate that um, is definitely interested in primary care, for example, something like that. We've talked about maybe redirecting that. I also have thought about uh, creating a specific list of uh, like a more detailed job description, I guess, and a list of expectations, not just the contract, because these are people who have never worked in a jobby job, a real job job. And wow, has it been an eye-opening experience, I think, for them of how hard it is to get up and go to work and see 20 to 30 patients in a shift and do all the associated work along with that. Um, Because you can tell someone a a lot of times that they're going to work 50, 60 hours, but they just don't hear you. Yeah, that is, I think, you know, the intern year is such a rude awakening and eye opener. And, you know, going through residency, you really realize how many hours you're going to work. And then you get a real job and it really isn't that bad because of, you know, compared to what you went through. But if you never had that experience, you you don't yeah. necessarily understand what you're in for. Yeah. And even just the simple thing of like, uh, Having a contract, what that means, what you've agreed to, that it's binding has been, it's been, it's been an eye-opening experience for me of like, don't you know what it is to sign a contract? They don't. They really don't. They're they new to, this is a brand new world for them. Everything is new. Yeah. So I think I would do more education about like the expectations. This is how many hours it's going to take you to see this many clinic hours, you know, sign here. This is what it is, you know, to work 10 hour shifts or whatever. And it, actually it's 12 or 14 or, you know, and, and these are the, um, because some people are going to be fine with that and totally on board. And some people I hope may say like, Hmm, yeah, maybe I don't want to do that in this gap year. I want to do something else with my time. I don't want to work 60 hours a week. And for us, we, we wanted that and we needed that. So I have a list of things. I'm just going to try to be more explicit about like what this job would really be like. And it truly is a job. Like I, I'm an altruistic person, but I am running a business and I, you know, I'm hiring an employee for this. I'm not running a residency. I'm not under the illusion that I'm going to allow them to get credit for it or that I run morning report. Although we do do that, by the way, in my practice, we do a lot of education and um, supervision for these, for these people. So I, I think it's a great experience, but, but so just saying out expectations about how much work and what type and that, um, there'll be, um, expectations and, 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 and quotas or whatever you want to call, you know, like every other job. Um, not just like, oh, you can go read for two hours. It's like, no, no, you got patients to see, you know. Right. So do you see yourself continuing to try this experiment and do this again? At this point, I think so. But we are, we are actually, like I said, just a little bit in a transition where we're like, wow, we got to think about this for a minute. But yeah, I think so. I think so. And it would be March, April before we would do that. So I just feel like a few more months, we're going to have a handle on like whether these ones match, if they continue what we do. Right. Well, there's um, just such a huge learning curve. And, you know, even though you have ideas about what it can be like, you really don't know until you 
just try it. And then you find out all the things that you would like to do differently. And, uh, but it is a big commitment and obligation and a lot of work for you, but it's, you're doing such a good thing for helping to give these students or doctors, new doctors, that opportunity. And I'm I'm just going to hope and pray that they do match. And so they can go on to become physicians and that you're able to take some more students next year. And hopefully other doctors will hear this and get interested in doing it too. Me too, me too. Um, There's actually several that didn't match in Utah and two medical schools opened in Utah in the last couple of years. And the first class that graduated, they had a very high no match rate, like 20%. And then they, yeah, and then they scrambled and like, I guess they got that down to four or five. So I'm going to do a better job of trying to recruit maybe from within the state, for example, not that they have to be, but then they have ties here because that has um, been hard for in anyway, some people we hired that live far away and trying to go. Sure. Back. You know, it's always going to be easier if people have family or friends or so, some kind of contacts. Yeah. I'm learning. The other thing I wanted to say is I they they used to limit just in primary care, and I have a bias towards primary care and we're short on primary care physicians, but but there is no limit on this law in Utah that they have to work in primary care. So and primary care is hard. It's the hardest. So I really think like if some ophthalmologist or OB guy or whatever, you know, got an unmatched doc that really wanted to do that, they could teach them so much of that narrow kind of like things that they need done that are repetitious or like easier, you know, because specialty, in my opinion, can be easier than primary care. And they may really utilize these people well, is all I'm saying, or find a niche for them in their practices that would be great for whatever applicants looking for, you know, what I think the message is every doctor listening to this podcast, you don't have to be a primary care doctor, you can be in any specialist, and you might be able to consider bringing on an unmatched resident to work, I shouldn't say resident an unmatched graduate to Mm. work under you and uh, have them, you know, get clinical experience in your field. And it could be part time. We just happened to hire full time. That's what we needed. But like you could do two days a week. You could do one day. I mean, a lot of these unmatched, like one I kept in contact with, he was very busy this middle year because he was like interviewing at a lot of places. And so he, he, you know, maybe they really don't, they want to, they could do a, a part time job is what I'm saying and a part time salary. There's a lot of flexibility. So Mary, if doctors are interested in this, is, is there, are you willing to talk to them or do you have resources that you would share with them? Yes, I would be happy to communicate about it. The email that I think would be best to share is my work one. If I was going to, it's mary.tipton at copperviewmedical.com. So that's my work email. We could share it in your podcast notes or whatever you do. Um, There is, like I said, that job listing or website uh, resources at the unmatchedmd.com. Also, there's a group of uh, physicians called AS Physicians or like a American Society of Physicians. It's asphysicians.org. And, and these are some of the people that I met initially that taught me about unmatched MDs that formed this organization to try to help create laws and states for them to, to work, you know, create work opportunities. So this is a resource both for the people who would want to hire and then also those who are uh, find themselves in this situation of being unmatched. So, and, and mostly just encourage them to drop the idea that they're inferior or that they should be ashamed of the fact that they were not able to get a spot. I really believe after studying this and learning and talking to these people, this is a situation that is way beyond, it is morphed into into such an injustice and an anti-competitive market and situations that we have, you know, tens of thousands of medical school graduates experience and, and skills being wasted in this country. And it is not because their fault. It is not their fault. They are average of $200,000 in debt. 
and they are just languishing, working as medical assistants and scribes at, at minimum wage. And I think it's a travesty that at the same time, these have all these states rushing to increase the scope of practice for non-medical school graduates, much more or inadequately or poorly trained replacements for physicians. I mean, that's an injustice. It makes no sense to keep in place these anti-competitive rules and unfair monopolistic practices on these medical school graduates. We need a pathway for them to work and to get full licensure to help physician shortages in this country. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a rigged system. It's a numbers game. And it just means that no matter how good you are, somebody, even if everybody was excellent, somebody just can't win because of the way the system is rigged. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for sharing this really important information. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I encourage you to get the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. Uh, It's available at amazon.com and at barnesandnoble.com. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about joining our group, which advocates for physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, please join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much. We'll see you in the next podcast.